Kia ora. Welcome to the Arise Church podcast. For more details, you can find us at arisechurch.com. But right now, we're going to hear from our Whangarei campus pastor, Aaron Halverson. We hope you enjoy today's message. It is a uh, great privilege to be here sharing with you today. It's a special privilege to be here as a part of our reflections around Anzac Day. Um, I'm so thankful that, uh, that Chris just preached that amazing little message there. So I can just tell my story, have my little corridor, and then we're done. It's good. Um, I'm wearing these today in honour of my granddad, Herbert Inglebrett Halverson, who faked his age, left home at Fananaki and Te Tautokoro and ran off to the First World War. Came home with scars and body and soul and spirit. I'll tell you the end of the story later. Greetings to you up there in Te Waka Maui, our southern friends. Uh, if you're in Kapiti or if you're in Whakaoreore or if you're in uh, Te Papa Ioia, anywhere that we're running in a rice service around uh, the country today, we look forward to being with you in person, but it's so wonderful to be able to share with you. To our online family, if you're in Aotearoa or wherever you are around the world, uh, it's just a, a wonderful privilege to have you here. Arahanui, as we would say. Big love to you. Much love to you. And to the best of all, to Te Tai Tokoro, to the Fano and Whangarei. Look at us now, eh? <laughs> I told you it was going to be a good Sunday. It is, of course, wonderful to be here at Pitaone here in this amazing place with these incredible faces. As I look around at you and see so many friends and so many smiling faces, I can only hope that by the end of the service, you're still smiling. <laughs> 15 minutes into this little message, we're going to be cheering. I'm going to give a quick scan and see if you're smiling. <laughs> Maybe by 25 minutes, we'll be back to smiles again. If you don't get to smile by 25, come back tonight. I'll preach something entirely different. All right, we'll give you a chance to smile then. I may be joking. Uh, but as, maybe. But as we approach Anzac Day in a moment of serious reflection and hopeful thanksgiving, regarding the price that has been paid for our national freedom, the previous generation in the theatres of war, and we think about them, we should shed some tears. We should always remember. It's a bit like as the church we share communion. We pause and we remember what has been done on our behalf. We take what happened externally and we internalize it. We make it our own value that will shape the way that we live. If there's one thing that I would pray out of this message is that we would go and we would live in a way that reflects the price that has been paid for us. Hallelujah. Out of the service, I want to encourage you over the values of life and the value of self-sacrificing love. I pray that Jesus would be the anchor for your soul. In a nutshell, the idea of the Gallipoli campaign was for the Allies, including New Zealand, to support the Russian Empire, who were our friends, fighting on the Eastern Front. If we didn't do that, then the Central Powers, the, uh, the, the Hungary Austrians, the, uh, the Ottomans, and the German Empire would be able to put all of their focus uh, onto the Western Front and come through Belgium and France. To support our friends in Russia, we needed to bring them supplies to their back doorstep on the Black Sea. To get to the Black Sea, you had to control Constantinople. To get to Constantinople, you had to sail through the Strait of the Dardanelles. To do that safely, you had to control the Gallipoli Peninsula. The plan was to deploy French and British troops right on the southern tip at Cape Hallers, and the Australian New Zealand soldiers would come in on the side at what becomes known as Anzac Cove. In this scenario, 
We find a Kiwi boy. Uh, in Whangarei, you can stop, right? The, the bookings are stopped right now. They take bets on when I'll cry in the service. <laughs> right? John Goff and whoever else, close the book, that's it. We find a Kiwi boy who's been assigned to the Hood Battalion of the British Navy. And how he got there was an adventure of its own. This kid, his name's Bernard. He turns up at Wellington College wow. in year nine. And quickly, two things happened. He was given the nickname Tiny because even as a schoolboy, he was over six feet tall. Secondly, despite his huge size, his entire life, he had a high-pitched, squeaky voice. So reportedly, on his first day, he got into 10 fights. He'd squeak, somebody would laugh, and he'd punch them. <laughs> Bernard Freiburg left school early. At his father's insistence, he became an apprentice dentist, which is a funny concept on its own. You go to the dentist, he says, yes, the apprentice will dig your teeth out today. <laughs> Uh, Bernard Tiny Freiburg, apprentice in Morrinsville, worked in Hamilton, and then was the resident dentist in Levin. During this time, he continued to excel in sailing and playing rugby for Horofanua and boxing. Wellington College actually taught him something. <laughs> he became both the New Zealand junior and senior swimming champion. He won 14 gold medals in the New Zealand champs. Bored with regular life, by 1914, Freiburg was in America. Allegedly, he funded his travel by competing in, in professional swimming races and picking up cash prize fight boxing matches. There's another myth that he was in Mexico during the revolution, fighting as a, as a, as a major under Pancho Villa. But when he heard that the World War I had started in Europe, he walked, according to this myth, 300 miles across land so he could then earn his way on a ship to get to England. However he got there, once he was in London, Freiburg basically curb crawled until he met Winston Churchill, the Lord of the Admiralty, and convinced Winston to give him a commission in the Royal Navy. Tiny first fought in the, in the Allied defence, the failed Allied defence of Antwerp in Belgium, where he received his first war wound in his hand before the Hood Battalion was sent via Egypt to Gallipoli. In Egypt, a Kiwi acquaintance who knew him met him there and remembered that, that, that Freiburg's plan was to keep his hand in his pocket so the doctors wouldn't see his wounded hand and stop him from going and joining the fight. The final details of the attack included sending a decoy invasion at the north end of the Gallipoli Peninsula, where it was the obvious terrain, the perfect terrain to attack, but they could already see that the, Tur the Turkish Ottomans had already dug defensive trenches there. To nail home the deception, the plan called for a 50-soldier platoon to land at night, light flares, and create an impression that they were forerunners for a massive assault to happen the next morning. The commanding officer called for volunteers. Freiburg thought that just one or two men could do the job by themselves. He suggested that he and another Hood officer, his friend Arthur Asquith, could go and do it. The problem was, his best friend's father was the political leader of Great Britain, and the commanding officer refused to be the guy who killed the Prime Minister's son. So much of what happened next is a bit shady about what is the truth and what is the myth around the man. The facts were that Freiburg was six foot two, over 100 kgs of muscle, and he was a champion swimmer. The myth is that he once carried a piano by himself up a set of Wellington stairs. <laughs> Later on in the war, he was known to pick up soldiers by himself and carry the wounded from the field. That dark night, with the platoon in a cutter boat, Freiburg told them to stop, maybe two to three kilometres offshore. He stripped off, they rubbed him down with black grease to handle the bitterly cold water. These are his own words. I started swimming to cover the remaining distance. 
towing a waterproof canvas bag containing three oil lamps and five calcium lights, a knife, a signal light, and a revolver. After an hour and a quarter's hard swimming in the bitter cold, I reached the shore and lighted my first flare, then took to the water and swam east another 300 yards away from my first flare, where I lighted my second and hid amongst the bushes to await developments. Freiburg returned to the beach, set off his last flare and swam off into the night in the hope of finding his friends in the dark. After about three hours in the water, he was pulled into the boat, having begun to cramp and with mild hypothermia. Later, other soldiers around him would say, he seemed to have a supreme contempt for danger, and his body bore the scars. Fighting at Gallipoli on the 20th of July, he received shrapnel wounds to his right shoulder and abdomen that were recorded as severe. He was back with his unit within a month where he was promoted to commander. His brother Oscar had also volunteered for the Royal Navy. He had been in a minesweeping boat and had his boats blown up three times already when they sent him ashore to fight, and he gave his life on the hills of Gallipoli. With the Collingwood Battalion, he was ordered to charge the Turkish positions for a third time after the two previous failures had resulted in 9,500 Allied casualties. As they went over the top, Oscar was killed almost instantly, along with over 90% of his battalion as the Ottoman machine guns ended the chance of any Allied victory. Once the Allies withdrew from Gallipoli and moved to the Somme in France in May 1916, Freiburg fractured his forearm but signed himself out of hospital so he could be back with his men. On the 13th of November in 1916 at Beaucourt in France, Freiburg's battalion, after carrying their initial attack straight through the enemy's front trenches, they were spread apart and they were disorganized. But Freiburg called to them out and he reformed his men and any other men from scattered units around them. And he led them successfully to overrun the second objective as well. During that, he was wounded, wounded twice, but remained in command and personally led his forerunners to hold the ground throughout the day and the following night. When reinforcements arrived the next morning, he again attacked and captured a third target, a strongly fortified village, taking over 500 prisoners. He was wounded twice in the second time severely, but Freiburg refused to leave the line until he had issued the final instructions and handed over his men into safe care. The citation for his Victoria Cross that he was awarded for this included these words. On the basis of his most conspicuous bravery and brilliant leading as battalion commander where he showed splendid personal gallantry, he inspired all with his own contempt of danger or those unsupported in a very advanced position and under heavy artillery and machine gun fire. He showed a fine example of dash and, personal, and personally leading the assault. The personality, valor, and utter contempt of danger on the part of a single officer enabled the most advanced objective of the army to be permanently held. And on his mark, the line was eventually formed. The shotgun wound uh, or shrapnel wound to his throat from this battle almost killed him. The stretcher bearers looked at the blood and the mess and they placed him with the soldiers expected to die. Barely conscious, he heard a voice telling them to move him to the tent for treatment. His life was saved by a field medic before he was sent back to London General Hospital. 25 years later in the Second World War, he was sitting in a hotel foyer in Egypt and he heard the same voice. He asked the man if he had been there in November 1916. It was the same medical officer who had saved his life, Captain S.S. Graves. 
then commanding a British hospital ship, he was finally able to thank the man who saved his life. He was back in battle in February 1917 and soon became the youngest brigadier general in the British army. In June, he heard that his brother Paul had been killed while fighting with the New Zealand Rifle Brigade when he received serious shrapnel wounds that took away his right eye and his jaw. He died from those wounds in a field hospital several days later, age 32. In September, Freiburg in the main battle of Menin received five more penetrating shrapnel wounds from an artillery shell. This took him longer to recover from and after the presentation of his Victoria Cross and a promotion, he was back on the front line. In June 1918, he was wounded for the ninth time with shell fragments in his leg and in his head. He was just one more incident that Freiburg wouldn't let keep him down. As the world, First World War approached its possible end with the armistice on the 11th of November 1918, the Allied commanders wanted to ensure that they had bridge access across an important river just in case the enemy didn't honour the armistice and things sprang back into contention. Bernard Freiburg at 9.30am on the last day of the war was ordered to take one final attack to, to seize the Dendra River Bridge in Lassine. He personally led the last cavalry charge of the uh, taking a, a squadron of the 7th Dragoon Guards. They raced 10 miles to capture the bridge, suffering no casualties, took four German officers and 167 uh, men prisoner with one minute to go in the war. Three times he's been awarded the Distinguished Service Order, the second highest bravery award available, and once the Victoria Cross. The French gave him the Cross of War. Winston Churchill gave him a personal nickname, calling him the Salamander for making it through all those battles and coming out alive. He was knighted a couple of times, I didn't know that could happen, and King George made him a lord. World War II soldiers, under his command, play rugby for the Freiburg Cup. Around Aotearoa, there were streets, schools, squares, monuments and memorials. There's sports centres, and I understand you have a swimming pool. There's a mountain in the Southern Alps named after him, and a whole range of mountains in Antarctica with his name on them. How cool is that? Freiburg came back and served as the Governor General of New Zealand. After that, he became the Queen's Deputy Constable and the Lieutenant Governor of Windsor Castle. My favourite honour that they gave him is this. The identified body of a British soldier was returned to Westminster Abbey and buried in a state funeral in the tomb of the unknown warrior. This was to represent the hundreds and thousands who, had, because of their courage and their sacrifice, should have been buried amongst the kings. The Black Belgium tombstone is inscribed with brass from melted-down wartime ammunition. The final lines on this inscription are, they buried him among the kings because he had done good towards God and towards his house. 2 Chronicles 24, verse 16. When you're looking at the tomb, around the four edges of the tombstone are New Testament quotations. On the left side is, greater love has no one than this. Yeah. On the right is, unknown and yet known, dying, but behold, we are alive. Across the top is, the Lord knows them that are his. And across the bottom is, in Christ shall all be made alive. Tombstone preaches its own gospel. The state funeral was attended by some dignitaries, but for me, the most important thing they did, they invited 100 British women to the funeral service. The criteria was that you would have to have had lost your husband and all of your sons in the war. 
They said that if you could fit that criteria, you would not be turned away. The honour guard for the unknown warrior was made up of 96 highly decorated servicemen, including 74 Victoria Cross recipients, who stood under the command of Bernard Tiny Freiburg. The Kiwi kid who had tried and failed to sail his dinghy across Crook Strait when he was 10 years old, now stands in Westminster Abbey at the head of the collection of some of the most courageous men you could ever put together. When Freiburg came back to visit his mum in Wellington while still injured in 1921, he refused every single invitation to make an appearance or give a speech, except for one, when he was asked to speak at the Wellington College Assembly on Anzac Day. The students were excited. They had General Tiny Freiburg, the man of all of these battles, this magnificent guy, the guy who'd been there and done all of that. They were expecting all the hero stuff, but they got nothing of the sort. He told them about his two brothers who had died. He cried. He stood there and he wept all over his red ribbons and his gold medals. This is the Victoria Cross and the DSO winner. And all he could tell them was, this must never happen again. The boys heard that day, what a rotten thing war is. Let's check out the theology from the tomb of the unknown warrior. John chapter 15, verse 13. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Two things I want to tell you out of this verse. The word love they use is the Greek word agape. It means a love feast or love with no strings attached. It means I'm not going to love you for what you can give back to me. It means I'm going to love you with complete and total disregard for self. The second thing is he says that we lay down our lives for our friends. It means the word philos, to be friendly. Not as in I have a natural affinity with this person or we enjoy our time together, but I have made a conscious choice that I will act as a friend to you. That if we as the church of Jesus Christ could embody this verse, John 15, that there is no greater love than for us with no strings attached to lay down our lives in service of those who we choose to be friendly towards. We see a glimpse of this in our own lives at times, and we see it strongly in the stories of these incredible war heroes who have laid down their lives for our freedom. But we see it completely in the self-sacrificing love that showed no conditions and no strings that was perfectly demonstrated by Jesus Christ. He chose to befriend you. He demonstrated it by lying down his, laying down his life with no strings attached. He decided he would be your friend, regardless of your response to him. He chose to love you and he chose to love me anyway. I don't know if Oscar or Paul Freiburg, as they died in the war, were thinking about generations to come. But this I'm assured of. When Jesus Christ hung on a cross, he was thinking about me. And when Jesus Christ hung on a cross, he was thinking about you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, probably the strangest verse that they put on that tombstone. As unknown and yet are well known, as dying and see, we are alive, as punished and yet not killed. 
This comes from the middle of a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is describing what it is like to serve Jesus Christ the same way that Christ has served us. Christ came and served us as the ultimate forerunner, the ultimate one going out by himself and saying, not in return for anything, but I will serve my life before you. So Paul writes and he says, listen, I'm not in this for what I can get out of it. In this line, he's like, I'll serve others without ever wishing for anything towards my own name, for me to be known, for me to have any fame. I will lay down my life in service of others so that they would know God's love. As an apostle, Paul makes himself of no home, no reputation and no certain future. He's so willing to say that, that in this life, I may never be known, but I am assured I will be known in heaven. The brilliant thing about that tomb of the unknown warrior is that any mum from around the empire could come and nobody could ever have with any certainty the ability to say to her, that's not your child, that's not your husband, that's not your son. That every single person is welcome to come to that point. Somebody who came of no reputation, making no name for themselves in service of mankind. Nowhere else do we see it better presented than in the life of Jesus Christ. Nowhere else should we feel more strongly called to it than as the church of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2 verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. I love that they took heaven's inscription, which is quoted in the Bible as an inscription, and they inscribed it on the tomb of the unknown warrior. This tomb is visited by the mourning. It's visited by the brokenhearted. It's visited by those who've got questions about why this had to happen. It's visited by the angry. It's visited by the alive, by the thankful. It's visited by people coming along from all sorts of things. But what is clearly said to them there is, you are known of God. If there is one thing that I feel to say to you now by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is if you've come into this place today and you are feeling like this is your last shot, This is your last time turning up. You've got so many questions and so many hurts and you don't know if you can do it again. Let me say to you right now, what is inscribed in heaven about you? God knows you. God knows those that are His. He knows your name. He knows the details. He knows the hurts and the pains. He knows the questions you carry in your heart. God knows who you are. Permanently inscribed, it says that God knows you. He knows when you've missed the mark. He knows when you've stuffed up. But God knows you and He loves you. God knows you and He loves you. God knows you and He loves you. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the final verse on that tombstone. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. For them and their generation in a world that was saturated in a Judeo-Christian ethic, where the church had great influence and sway and a large proportion of the population would have known these passages of scriptures. That they would have known that we've got something to look forward to at the end of this mortal earthly life. We've got something else to look forward to. But that is a message that we need to take again to the nations of this world. That we're not living just under the influence of science and rationale, but we're actually living in a world that is created by an eternal God. He doesn't only rule over heaven, but He rules over the heavens and the earth. He doesn't only rule over the life that we live in now, but He also rules over what is to come. 
that as Christians, we get this great joy. We get this, have you ever woken up and just realized I'm born again and that changes everything? Have you ever woken up and realized that, that you used to live with fears and concerns and anxieties, but because of the work of Jesus Christ, everything is restored and redeemed in Him? This promise is accurate and sure that in Jesus Christ, we will be made alive. They declare it over that unknown warrior in that tomb, but we declare it over your lives right now. In Jesus Christ, all those things given up for dead can be made alive again. According to the Scriptures, man by his own idolatry lives with the consequences of sin. We chose to worship in the garden something other than God. And because of that, sin found its way into our lives. Before we bother on dealing with, you've got this particular sin or that sin and list out all of your naughty sins, at the heart of it, we have to come back, as Chris shared this morning, our first port of call is to come back and say, Jesus, we worship you. If you come to Jesus... All that stuff takes care of itself. He's a God of incredible, overflowing grace. We choose to worship something other than God, and in doing so, we became less than the image of God that He called us to be. All die in Adam. But Christ came with self-sacrificing love that in His death on the cross, He would amend what has been done. Christ came offering to reconcile all to Him. He offers that you can be alive in him. I presented to you a story of a guy named Bernard Tiny, the Salamander Freiburg, who rather than jeopardizing the lives of a 50-man platoon in a boat, decided, I'll be the forerunner. I'll swim in by myself. I'll pay the price so others can be free. If we look through the chronicles of the Bible, the scripture, the Jewish Old Testament, We find again and again and again incredible champions who chose to be a forerunner. David goes into a valley by himself, leaving behind the comfort of the crowd. He says, I'll be a forerunner on behalf of my generation. Esther goes in before a king by herself on behalf of her people. She goes as 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 a forerunner. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. We have this hope. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, what is he? A forerunner on our behalf has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the Melchizedek. We have David who goes down and as a forerunner pays a price and his entire generation is saved. We have Esther who goes in as a forerunner and pays a price and our entire generation is saved. We have Tiny and all of his comrades who go in as forerunners and and for him receiving the Victoria Cross that he's willing to go once, twice, three times and carry on pushing that line ahead when nobody's been before. Goes as a forerunner that a generation would be saved. But ultimately we come to Jesus Christ, the forerunner, who went alone to a cross. There's so many parallels we can look at. Naked, exposed, out in the open, thinking not of himself, but thinking of a generation to come. Jesus as our forerunner is our great hope. In the last season, you might have had waves of despair come upon you. In the last season, you might have had waves of chaos come upon you. You might have been disheartened. You might have been overwhelmed. But you're here, and I hope that you're here, not because... (laughs) 
I hope that you're here not because the tide's gone out and come back in again and you're just being swept along, but I hope you're here because you're holding onto a rope. And on the other end of that rope is an anchor. And his name is Jesus Christ. My personal testimony to you, to anybody who's out there watching online is this. In Jesus Christ, I find an anchor for my soul. And it doesn't matter what despair, it doesn't matter what pain, it doesn't matter what confusion comes along. I know that at the end of the day, through the storm, I'll be held secure because I have an anchor called Jesus Christ. As I finish today, I would love to pray with you. In Freiburg's last swim, to be the first man ashore at Gallipoli, we have a beautiful picture of a forerunner. Our thanks is with him for the genuine care of others that he went out alone. But in Jesus Christ, we have assurance, dead fast forerunner. He went to the cross alone, tore the veil, and opened the way for us to know our gracious God and our loving Father. Our God, I pray right now, Lord, in this place, Lord, you would stir in our hearts by the stories we have heard, by those who have gone before us. Lord, by the reading of your scripture, that the power of your holy, life-bringing words would move in our hearts, God. That first of all, we would know that we are secure in you. We need to be thankful to you because you are the forerunner for our souls. And God, secondly, that you would stir in us that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we would live our lives in a like manner, that we would become forerunners for this generation, that we would be willing to leave the comfort of what we already know and embrace the incredible adventure that you have for us. God, I pray that this would be written large in the hearts of your church. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for joining us for the Arise Church podcast. We hope this message has blessed you. For more content or resources, visit arisechurch.com. Matiwa, see you soon.